Welcome back to the Retroride podcast. I'm Tommy Overdrive and this week we're once again joined by Chaz. So we're going to follow on from last week, except this time I'm taking the David Frost role and our fellow Retroride's comrade Chaz is going to be in the hot seat. So now we shine the spotlight, or should I say full beam, in the direction of Chaz. How are we doing? Hello there, I'm good sir. Not too bad at all. How are you? I'm good. I'm actually really psyched not to be answering questions, but to be asking them this week. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to run a very similar script to the ones that you've run us, just to keep things fair and level. So my first question to you is this. Where did your love affair begin with retros? Probably from a young age. So fancied, I fancied MGB when I was younger because I saw a variety of people in them and I fancied a slice of that life. Liked how they were different, you know, they weren't just a B30 BMW, you know, they were a revered classic of the day. And also, yeah, the cars, which were newish at the time that, you know, that I, I saw cars. Yeah, I really liked them. You didn't see many of them, like you see now, Escort RS Turbos, Porsche 944s, Sierra Cosworths, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I really enjoyed retros then, loved the sound of them, loved what they represented. So, yeah. It's from a young age, and as I got older, I got to buy the stuff as it got cheaper. Yeah, I uh, I can I know exactly where you're coming from, as we've, we've covered already. Uh, so, that leads us on to the next one. I'm going to imagine I know the answer, but why did you join Retro Rides? <laughs> I joined Retro Rides down to the very first Retro that I owned, which was an MGB GT. So, it was a late rubber bumper car, so 79, and I was converting it as a first Retro you know, not much mechanical experience or whatever, into a Sebring replica. So wide arches, big wheels. And it all started from, I don't know if you remember, the RPM magazine. I do, I do. That cursed magazine of, you can build one for £4,000. And I was thinking, I've already got the MGB, so that £4,000 isn't £4,000. <laughs> and as someone young and naive, and forgive me if it sounds familiar, you know, I was like, yeah, I can do this. And like, Oh crap, the mini lock wheels are £500 no matter what. Which sounds cheap now for wheels, but back then, I think you would agree, back in 2006, that's when I joined. Yeah. That's when wheels were, that's, you know, that was a big deal. You know, that was quite a lot of cash for a set of wheels, I'd imagine, back then. Yeah. So yeah, I joined then, and basically what happened in terms of me joining, a friend of mine, he's on the forum as well, but not anymore, it's a chap called Sleeky, and he was saying, yeah, there's this forum called Retro Rides. And I went on to it, and it just seemed to be, have a nice vibe about it, you know, people were friendly, people were chilled, and it seemed to be anything went. You know, I joined in 2006, and the MGB Sebring replica had a lot of attention back then, and also the crap that I had at the time, so I had a Volvo 740 GLE at 89, I had that, I had a, a horrific MG Midget 1975. But yeah, they all had attention. They all kind of like enjoyed it. People were like, wow, I've all this unfolded. This is amazing. And I'm thinking, this cost me 150 quid. But yeah, <laughs> there was a car to represent everyone there that was old. And it goes back to what you're saying earlier in the fact that the cheap corner of the market, that of, you know, old but with potential. You know, that's what Richard Rise is about and that's what it represented. Here I am all those years later. So it sounds to me like you also kicked off your retro journey like mine as a fleet of retro owners rather than one specific car. Do you share the peak fleet number rule or is it any any amount goes? Oh, I've not really had a peak fleet uh, rule, but it has fluctuated. When I first started out for the first, let's say, 10 or 12 years of owning retros, didn't really have the rule. 
any more than one, I was always looking to get rid of the second car or the third car. However, when I hit four cars, a couple of them shared with friends, it just kind of, you know, went crazy. The idea of me buying the M3, which I still own now, in 2016, was I'd become a one-person guy. I thought, too many projects, focus your attention to one. And that lasted all of two years. <laughs> My rule now is to have two cars. So a daily driver and an older car, which I did do with my E91-325D and the M3, but yeah, the 124 is thrown out into disarray. Note, note to anyone, don't offer me a car cheaply, because I'm, I might just say yes. So what's been the peak number of cars you've owned? Uh, peak number of cars at one given time, it's got to be about five, I think. That's respectable. That I've had worse, but that is respectable. Yeah. I mean, bear in mind, I was borrowing people's spaces. I wasn't earning enough to run a unit and stuff. A couple of them were stored in my parents' driveway, and I've figured out even more ever-inventive ways of, like, you know, playing card Tetris in the driveway and pissing off half the street to try and park them closer and closer. <laughs> what did I have? What, what cars did I have? The Mondeo V6... I had the Stag, the 205 GTI, the 106 GTI, and I had a, yeah, 944 Turbo. So that's a fairly eclectic mix. Yeah, quite a variety. Out of, I suppose that leads me on to the next one, what's, what's the total number that you've had? Total number of cars I've had is about 48. So, yeah, about around 50. That's actually not as bad a number as I thought, because when you say you've had, like, five at one time, 48 means you've, you've, given, them, you've given them time. You've given them the time of day. It's not been a conveyor belt, so that's good. No, no, no. I tend to keep a car for a year. I've very rarely kept a car for less than about three months. There's generally reasons for if I have. You know, generally, you know, if I need to get rid of the car for whatever reason. Or it was a dog, and I've declared that to people, and I've eventually ended up scrapping it. So, yeah, that's how I've rolled. So, which one of those cars was the one that you wish you kept? That's a very good question. Can I give two answers here, or does it have to be one? No, you can give me two if you like. I'm going to try and give you one, but I'll dance around two. So, for me, it's got to be between two cars. It's got to be between my Porsche 944 Turbo and my MGB GT Sebring Replica. 944 Turbo because I got the car very cheap for what it was at the time. For people wondering, it was three and a half thousand pounds in 2013, and it wasn't a spec that I always wanted. KWV3s, uh, Porsche big black brakes, which are 965 turbo, nine, Porsche 965 brakes, all round, um, Lindsay Racing Stage, not intercooler, chipped, new sails, new wings. It was a lovely, lovely car, and it drove, it was fast. You know, 3,000 came, it just went for the hills, and I loved pop-up headlights that the boxy arches and everything and I don't know what the 944 represented it was nothing great but it was fantastic oh and a switchable exhaust who doesn't love switchable exhausts for pissing off people at track days a switchable exhaust I'm going to imagine this wasn't a car you owned yesterday so that's that's quite an impressive thing to have on an old retro too so Wartech did a, an exhaust for them back in the noughties it was quite a pricey exhaust I think about a grand and my car came with it and I'm very happy the car came with it because I could literally just go a flick of a switch go to deafen myself in tunnels and quiet so I could go back home and not piss anyone off. So that was a win. The other car, I didn't want to keep this car for a long time. The 944 was always the car I wished I kept. But the MGB Sebring project, I had no regrets when I got rid of that. I kept it for 10 years, cut my teeth on it, and I got it as far as I could. Did the suspension, did the arches, put the nice mini-lock wheels on, did the interior. But when it came to doing the paint, bear in mind I bought the car for 600 quid and I ploughed a lot of cash into it. it. must have been at least three or four times. Well, no, it was well over that, actually. It was 
probably about six times what I paid for it <laughs> in, two, in about 2008-ish. It really wanted an engine swap because, without being funny, having a wide arch Sebring with a uh, 1.8 B series isn't going to win you any prizes. If it doesn't have the V8, you're cheating. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. You know, it's, we look at prices now, but back then prices seemed expensive too. Maybe that's why I bought the 124 and the motorbike that I got. You know, because both of those are a bit more than what I'd normally spend. Rover V8 were kind of going up in price back then because I think the days of getting a 200 quid SD one was coming to a close. And it also needed a paint job is the other thing. But I didn't really want to commit myself to spending more. And about four years ago, I came to regret that. And I was like, that's my first car. It's the first car where I made mistakes, but I actually learned ahead of a lot and turned into something quite cool. Jacob's Classic Snow owned it in Gloucester, and it looks absolutely spectacular. I'm thinking... Damn, I should have done that. If it's between the two, it's got to be a got to be a close call. Probably the probably the Porsche. Made some good friends out of that. The Porsche had a good had a good time. Yeah, why did you get rid of the Porsche? Though? This is a this is a, a silly reason for why I got rid. I had the Triumph Stag at the time. It wasn't the best example that I bought, and I ploughed a fortune into it and a lot of time. And the gearbox, which I had rebuilt, was going again. And at this point, I learned that you should really not put a rebuilt gearbox onto old cooler lines or old, uh, <laughs> or an old cooler, especially when the old box shit itself. <laughs> and basically the car, I came to learn, don't, you know, don't fall in love with the first car that you see, no matter how cheap it is, or don't fall in love with a car which is cheap and thinking you can do it up because unless you know what you're doing, you know, it can very quickly spiral and that car did. So that stag, I just could not bear to get rid of it because I'd put so much time, money and effort into it. I just couldn't bear to cut it loose, which is ironically what the next guy did and he got rid and got burnt as well, just like me. <laughs> We're still friends, so we can't be that bad. But no, that's why I got rid. The 944 was good to go. I adored the car. I was gutted when I got rid, especially in comparison to what they're worth now. But, it's, you know, that's immaterial. But, yeah, that's the reason why I got rid, because the stag, I just could not see anybody taking it on from me. A valuable life lesson, except that sometimes you have to lose to win. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. Well, I think that kind of segues on to my next question. What is your worst retro experience? Worst retro experience has to be when I broke down in Italy. That's got to be single-handedly the worst retro experience. Oh. Yeah. But with a but, but with a but. So we bought two two cheap cars. There's a theme with this. <laughs> One was a three hundred pound Escort <laughs> XR3i from Rochester from Rochester in two thousand. Was it convertible? It is a com- yes. It always is. It's always a convertible if it's a cheap one. Yep. Uh, and I also had a Volvo 740 GLE. So five mates. We all clubbed in together to buy this, and the intention was. We would take them around Europe. The Escort didn't start well with 12 months ticket, pluming out black smoke and not starting always because a fuel pump <laughs> relay was on the way out. And the, the bigger problem was the drive shaft was shaking the car loose coming back because the tripod joint was missing one of the bearings. So basically the CV was just, oh, going, Jesus. you know, just wobbling about in the tripod. Uh. Threw a drive shaft in, bodily resprayed it and took it around. And we then found out as we're going towards Dover, the alternator light was beginning to very dimly come on at times. Oh, Jesus. And then finally, the alternator decided to go completely on the piss with the casings when we hit Italy. So we were there in Italy, you know, not being able to speak much English in Genoa. And basically, we were like, and the exhaust had fallen off. That was the other thing. The exhaust just fell off within a tunnel. <laughs> so then we're like, we've got to somehow get rid of this exhaust. So at the side of the Italian auto route, you know, 
getting screwdrivers, just like makeshift chisels. We've all been there. We've all done that, and just yeah, and just bashing it open to try and do it. And it's like no, this exhaust is ceased to bits. So we threw it through the roof of the Volvo. <laughs> the exhaust got a photo of it somewhere, <laughs> and. Yeah, we went to Genoa and then we saw some chav basically saying to us, oh yes, I know a garage who can sort you out. And you're thinking, shit, we're going to die. So we follow him through Genoa with <laughs> a battery light just like, you know, embedding itself into your skull as you're driving through the uh, Genoa sun. You've got it where the, it's as loud as hell because basically you had the exhaust manifold and nothing else running exhaust. But yeah, we found us a garage who fixed it up and then it went from being the worst experience to the best experience because an Italian family took us in. Yeah, basically gave us a, a good day for a day, which was nice. So yeah. For a day, it was stressful, but then it very quickly turned. Do you know, I often find uh, a lot of these dire situations end up, you're looking back and you think, that's actually a really a fun adventure. Although at the time, you just think there's, there's just nothing worse. 100%. Okay, well, let's, let's go off uh, your own personal misery. Uh, let's think about some others. Who do you follow on YouTube? I follow a few guys. So Soup's one guy who I follow, like yourself. He's very good. He's quite, mm-hmm. he's quite eclectic. He's quite patient. You know, he does things right. Uh, the other people that I follow, they've changed. It used to be Mighty Car Mods, but I don't follow them as much. Okay. I think you follow them as well to some degree, no? I actually do, but again, like yourself, I, I hit the I did the carnal sin and hit the unsubscribe. Wow. Um, but yeah, it was. I'm going to just summarise it by being it was formulaic. Um, it wasn't really bringing anything new to the table, but I'm sure you have your own reasons for, for not watching as much. No, similar re- I think similar reasons, you know. You know, when they were doing different things and, you know, bringing up crap cars and into something amazing, which I could personally associate myself with doing. <laughs> you know, you kind of find an affinity with that. It's nice to kind of share the, share the burden. Probably one reason why people love Roadkill as much as they did when that was on YouTube. Yeah. Regarding other channels, the Beamer guys are like this. I follow M539, who's uh, stressing... I don't, his surname is Miss... Uh, I can't pronounce his surname. I'm not going to even attempt it. But Stretton's on there, and he kind of does cars as you'd want them to be done. He doesn't restore a car necessarily, although he has restored an Alpine on there recently, but he's quite methodical. He buys the proper quality parts. He goes through the proper procedures. So, yeah, he's a main one that I follow. But is there anyone else? And I also follow Hubnut at times. I fell out of love with him for a bit, but I quite like his honesty, as well as um, furious driving. That's another one. Interesting. Any of those that are proper up-and-comers that could do a shout-out? Up-and-comers? Probably furious driving, because I think, yeah, he's a bit nervous, he's a bit awkward in his delivery, but he's very honest. He goes through his thought process, like, for instance, I'm sure you've thought this as a YouTuber, you know, if you're really struggling to fix a car, you could be struggling away for ages and ages and ages with trying to fix a problem. But you edit it all out and by movie magic make yourself look like a magician. And I think it's refreshing to see someone go, actually, no, I do get it wrong. I hold my hands up. I don't know everything. Not even close, but fixing a car is a journey. I think that's one of the, the one of the things I really appreciate in YouTube is when folk have honesty about it. Because uh, there's so many folk on there that don't. It's Take a break from it. Give something that's truthful. And it, it makes a lot of difference to what people find enjoyable about you. You're not wrong. I mean, a bit like TV, you know, Gas Monkey Garage and, you know, Wheel Adidas and stuff. They sort of, you know, show how things are done quite easily and stuff. And I think YouTube has kind of turned that ideology upside down in its head because you do see people struggling day in, day out with trying to fix things with their fleets of cars and stuff. It has brought up more of an honesty because you just literally grab a phone, chuck it in front and see what's happening. Exactly. 
Okay, well, give us some more recommendations. You're a man who isn't afraid of getting your arms dirty working in a car. What tool could you not live without? I've gone soft here. I'm nowhere near as good as you with the welder. For me, I've actually gave it some thought. It's got to be my impact driver, believe it or not. Right. My impact ratchet, impact ratchet. So I've got both. The impact ratchet, probably because if you're doing, if you're working on the naughty stuff like me, and if you're working on old German cars... They tend to have 10 fixings when they, when normally most of the manufacturers are gone with one fixing. And if you're as sad as me, you want to put all of those fixings back in place. I know it's just a very, very handy tool. It just speeds you up quite a bit. And if you're like me, you've got a full-time you know, day job. But you don't like giving your cars to other mechanics, but you want to fix them yourself and attempt to do, to do the job right. It's just the one tool that can speed you up. And the main thing, as long as you don't go too gung-ho, it's actually a very, very handy tool. Yeah, do you know, I'm, I'm fully on board. One thing that working in cars can catch folk out on is fatigue. And a tool like that just saves you so much energy. Oh, yeah. I mean, if there's a dodgy fixing, I won't use it, don't get me wrong, you know, where something's going in by the skin of its teeth on the thread. But even I'm getting softer in the fact that instead of trying to bodge it with tin foil, use a helicoil kit. <laughs> fatigue and getting the job done faster and actually just enjoying fixing cars. I think it you know, just really helps. So go on, what brand do you associate with the most for your impact tools? I've got a mixture. So I have, I've got Makita, Makita, DeWalt and Draper. And the, the scales have gone towards DeWalt lately. Yeah, recently they felt a bit cheaper than the, I thought they felt a bit cheaper than the Makita's, but they do what they say on the tin. My DeWalt 899 rattle gun, which I know a few guys who listen to this will know. You know, it's a very beefy gun. Well, it sounds to me like you've got a bit of experience, so I, I need to have the expose question. If, uh, I just want to say, have you been involved in the automotive trade in the past or currently? Yeah, I have been involved in the automotive trade. I've helped out a couple of classic car garages over the years. Uh, helped out a few you know, traders behind the scenes as well in terms of trying to fix things because between the two of us, mindsets can get together. In terms of garages I've worked with, a garage called uh, Carl Dandridge, or KDT as it was called for a short while. He's into old Triumphs. So yeah, helped him on a couple of Triumph projects and helped him build them up, uh, which is quite cool. Uh, old Vogue's home, I just did a couple of odd jobs there. And in the midst of a recession, uh, my dad and I opened up an LPG conversion business of converting cars to LPG. Interesting. Yeah. So is that still on the go? Uh, no. Um, the problem was my dad and I, we were way too much of a of a perfectionist kind of outfit and wanted to get things right because we used to do back in the day about 5,000 miles a month we both used to be drivers for us having it working right and having the performance right was a big deal to us but to do that just took us a lot of time we used to work out you know on people's uh, you know yards and stuff so weren't always blessed with dry nice conditions but no we converted a few and I think Credit is most of the cars, unless they've been written off, they're still going. Besides that, I'm involved, I was then involved with doing operating licenses for trucks at Calagas. Now I'm an engineer for a car company working on automotive paints. There you go. Climbed the ladder a bit there. Yeah. So, let me see. You've had a good few retros. What's the one you'd want to get behind the driving seat of next? Oh, I'd want to go back to a Mini, I think. They're small, they're light, they're a lot of fun. Everything's available. They're still customizable, and you can still add your own touch to them. They are a little bit expensive, if I'm being honest, for something that's nice. They're getting a bit spacey. I mean, I was going to classic car auctions before I bought my 124, and I saw a nice one there. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll go for two or three grand. 
you know, the market's taken a downturn, I'll be able to get it 10 grand. And I was like, okay. And that was a mini Mayfair, nothing special. Just an 80s Mayfair with some nice bits fitted. You know, minis have oversills, no oversills, which for me was a huge tick. So what is your ideal spec of mini if you had the money, no object car in front of you? Um, I'm, I'm a traditionalist and a bit boring in that respect. 10 inch Mambas or Revolutions. About the smallest arch I can get away with, and I do mean the smallest arch I can get away with, <laughs> as in keeping it all legal beagle. Yeah, high lows all round. Something like a 1330 or a 1380. Nice swift cam. Maybe do something a bit different on the fueling and the injection side. So yeah, I'd still keep the A series, I suppose. But I'd want to put something a bit more modern, so I don't know. Either S series I put a one, two, three dizzy in or go fully electric. I don't think I'd go down the direct injection head route even though that can have some decent things. I know it's a bit of a topic that's come onto the uh, forum recently, do a bit of a cafe racer-inspired interiors, you know, a couple of carpets, a bit yeah. of a cage, and yeah, some nice seats, but something quite classical looking. Yeah, I do I do love a mini as well. I'm slightly different from you. I like I like the big the big chunky 13s and the wide arches, <laughs> but it's not a million miles away from your idea. No. No, lovely. Sounds like a future build-off. <laughs> if only we had the budget. Well, that kind of brings me to the next one. You clearly enjoy fixing, but what is your preference? Fix Driving. It changes by the day. <laughs> at the moment, <laughs> at the moment, because I've got an awkward issue with the Merc, it's definitely driving. I've driven across you know, Europe and stuff, and I really enjoyed going, doing those tours around Europe. It's probably one reason why I've kept the M3 for as long as I have. The people you meet. I was thinking about this before with driving cars. I think part of the reason why we got into cars is cars represent the journey that they can take you on. You get to go to new places. That much more personable to going to places than you are with, let's say, taking a plane everywhere. So, yeah, definitely driving. You know, love the dynamics. Love, you know, how a car turns in. It's great. But that's not to say I don't hate fixing things. When I do get into the fixing vibe, I do enjoy it. You know, seeing things come through at the end uh, is quite nice. I think with me at the moment, I just... Just not really seen it with the, with my Merc, but I'm sure that will change in the future. Yeah, you're bogged down with not having the love of working in cars. Let's swap it around. What has been your biggest retro win? Biggest retro win for me has to be going to the Retro Rides gatherings and the Retro Rides weekenders. I know that sounds very biased and very cliche, but it has <laughs> to be. I suppose for me, I've you know met a lot of friends, had some fantastic times, and yeah, just learnt a lot more. Although the internet has many more answers, it's aided in that transparency. You know, every day is a school day. You still learn things and you get to make that with the people, which is uh, quite something. Do you know, that's actually a very interesting point. Everyone says that the, there's always an answer to something on the internet, but I feel only if somebody will answer you. And sometimes you can ask a question and it just gets lost in the abyss. But if you know the people that have the answers, you'll get it quicker and you'll get the right one. So you're bang on the money with that sometimes. Building the relationships is a big, big part of it. Oh, God, yeah, it is. I mean, I go to breakfast most mornings with guys. One of them met at a retro ride show after a 15-year hiatus. We weren't even friends then, but now we're very good friends. Uh, the other guy I knew on and off. And that's been a gate, you know, the show's been a gateway to us for more friends. And yeah, we do bounce off each other ideas and stuff, definitely for me. If you're referring to a car, it's probably going to be the Dolomite Sprint I picked up in 2012. A Dolly Sprint, right. Okay, what was the big win about that? It was actually a very good car for not a lot of cash, and it had the right fixes for someone of my mindset at the time. Sometimes mm. the stars align. And the stars really aligned for me when I bought that car. I felt very sorry for the guy who I bought it off. It was it's 20, <laughs> it was 2012, so Hoops on Toast, who was on the forum as well, he was going to buy this car. This car's got a bit of a funny history with a few of us. He was going to buy this car in 2008 over the car that he bought instead, the 3100. 
where this American chap bought it instead. And he spent, I feel so sorry for him, and he spent over the next two years six grand between a lot of garages. And the car wasn't right. I mean, when I went to go and see the car, it had Yoko A539s all round. The tyres were worn down to the nub on the inside. The, it had an electric water pump conversion done. It was overcooling. And it had lots of silly little faults. But it was actually a tidy car. It was rusty. It's a Dolly Sprint. But it was very good for one of those. And it had an older restoration done on it. I paid him... I think I gave him a grand I did. Wow. Which, yeah, was very cheap back then. And he... He was like, are you sure you want to give me the money blind, Chaz? I was like, yes, you've been very honest with how you described it. You clearly hate it. I'll take it off your hands and, yeah, be rid of it. Got it home. It did overcool all the way back because the controller had gone on the blink, thanks to the garages who botched it up. New track rod ends, got the got it all tracked up, welded up the floor, the leg, and part of the seal because they were a little crusty on it. Got the engine balanced up, even though he paid a fortune to get the carbs balanced. They weren't even close to being balanced over the mixtures, right? Did a couple of little things like that on the, you know, tuned it up and everything. And it was a really nice car by the end of it. Do you know what? That's a car which I'm quite proud to own and have. How long did you have it for? I had it for about eight months. That's, and that's a long time, is it? <laughs> yeah, it was good fun. I debated keeping it, but again, the stag, I was in the honeymoon phase before things went very, very south on that. Well, I've got one just before we wrap up. Now, we both know that Retro Rides Gathering is going to be one in the calendar for us, but what other shows are you planning on hitting this year? I'm doing a few local shows. I was very busy with family stuff last year, so the Southam Club near me, Southam Car Club do a decent show near me. That's one I'll do. It was a small show, but it's really grown, and it's got a nice collection of people that come along and different things. Gaben Gatherings which are held at the British Motor Museum near me. Another great thing to do. The big one I'm doing, however, is the Lon Historique, which is spelt L-A-O-N, which is in Picardy in France. Not sure what car I'm going to take. I'm thinking it's going to be probably the M3. It depends what I do with the 124. It's not bad, the 124, the running issue, but it'd be nice to have a bit more go to it. The question is, will three of us be going in my car, or will there be a couple of us in two cars? But no, that's a good show. If anyone's not done the Easter week, you do a rally, you get to meet a huge array of people, not just Brits, but, you know, French people and, German, you know, German people and so on. It goes back to what I was saying of you learn something new there in terms of new cars and stuff and people who know more than the internet because, you know, those regions don't maybe share as much of the internet. Well, we don't find it because not, the results aren't in English. Jazz, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for answering all my questions. I still haven't worked out how to properly end a podcast, so we'll just wrap up by saying, drive safe, guys. Definitely. Drive safe all.